everybody, this is S. Anthony Thomas. This is the S. Anthony Thomas Show, and my guest this time is someone I've actually wanted to have on the show for quite a while. His name is Eddie Brill. He, I refer to him as a comedy legend for a reason. Uh, basically, the guy's done everything. I mean, he's been on television, I think, uh, 17, no, no decillion times. He's played comedy concerts around the world. I mean, Australia, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, France, Holland, Hong Kong. Yes, I said Hong Kong. Uh, he actually was the audience warm-up for Late Show with David Letterman. But he was also the stand-up comedy talent coordinator for Late Show with David Letterman. Basically, this man has done it all. There's a reason I called him a legend in comedy. And you will find out why in this episode. I've been wanting to have this guy on the show for a long time. This episode absolutely rules. You will love it. Trust me. I know because I was there. (laughs) So as always, much love to you. And are you ready for the show? Of course you are. Let's do it. Well, hello, Mr. Brill. Hello there. How are I, you doing? I'm well. I just came from another <laughs> show. This was it was uh, it wasn't stand up, but it was it was really cool. And what do I call you, Anthony or S. Anthony? I've never called you. Well, my friends call. My- yeah, my friends call me as Anthony. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I want to be your friend, so. Yes, and, well, by the time we're done with this, we're probably going to go out for coffee, even though we're probably in different states right now. Yeah, we are so far. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll walk toward you and you walk toward me. And by the time <laughs> this is over, we'll be in the same place. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's about 100 miles, so. Uh... <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll walk quick. I'll, I'll move. I'll move fast. Where are you right now? <laughs> it might take a Well, right now I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was just watching. Yeah, I'm, I'm visiting recorded, I recorded the Mets and the Phillies, and I don't want to, you know, I I have recorded. So, in a sense, my TV is in Philadelphia right now, uh, the game. But I'm, uh, recording. I'm recording it, and I'll watch it after this uh, recording. This is a very interesting thing because, you know, Warring teams, you know. I'm. It's like I grew up hating all the teams that you love. Right. Yeah, especially <laughs> especially the, you know like they because they've always beaten us. You know they've they've always done really well against us. You know like especially like in the I'm a hockey fan so the 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 Broad Street Bullies were just you know just wiped the floor with us and uh, you know throughout the the years the Mets have only really won two World Series in their history where you know the Phillies have been you know I mean I'm a Mets fan so I actually was oddly enough I didn't even think about it till now I was at the last the Mets the Yankees played the Phillies the first year of the new Yankee Stadium and I happened to be at game six and I was with a Mm. Philly fan you know I didn't care you know either way because I'm I'm a Mets fan and but I was with a friend of mine who wore her Phillies gear, and we had a sort of run for our lives, <laughs> you know, at one point. That that actually sounds because uh, uh, the thing is, is 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 New York and Philadelphia basically are very similar in many many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is you cannot wear the uh, the enemy uniform, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, in the other stadium, even though baseball is not exactly as aggressive as if you were to go to a hockey stadium or a right. football stadium 
um, where you basically should just beat yourself up and stay home and save yourself some money. Right. You know, and, and, you, you know. and you know where to hide the bruises, you know, as opposed to. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because I'm not an Eagle. I'm not a Jet Giants fan, so we don't really play the Eagles that much, although the Giants are in the same division as the Eagles. So that would probably be a bigger rivalry. And here's an interesting thing. I love Philadelphia. I I have a I get a good feeling. You know, there are certain cities as a performer, comedian, someone who knows the world in a sort of rhythmic feel the rhythm of a room sense. There's a good energy in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and I've been there a lot a lot. Um I've see, I've gone to see concerts there because it's not a long travel. You know, you can take the Amtrak and get there in an hour sometimes, I think, or an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen a lot of great concerts there. I've stayed overnight. I've eaten there. I've gone to uh, where where I when I go to D.C., I just get a sick feeling in my stomach. Um, but in Philly, <laughs> well, there's, the, there's many reasons for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really is. And and for every reason possible. I don't love D.C., except for I used to love the D.C. Improv, which was great. Well, it's a great club. There was a great club. But Philadelphia has always been, I've always had an incredibly great time and had a good feeling and a million great friends in that city. And we used to joke around and call it the city of lovely brothers. <laughs> well, apparently you've seen my avatar. Well, thank you, man. No, I really there appreciate you go. that. You are, you are a lovely it's a wonderful. <laughs> but no, I've always it, been. It's I've really always, weird because. Go ahead, your turn. Oh no! Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say I was gonna <laughs> you do like an Arsenio thing where I was gonna compliment you and then right after you complimented me, kind of thing. But I, I do, you know, we don't know each other well, but I've always respected you and I've always thought you were great. So when you asked me to do this, I was thrilled because this was the first time we'd really actually get to have a long chat. Well, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to do this for a while. Uh, I, I started doing comedy in, obviously, here. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't live here, but I'm here now. I'm, I live in New Jersey. Um, I, I've been since 1986. And there were always people that I always enjoyed watching because I liked the artistry of it. I mean, one of the things I always enjoyed about stand-up comedy is to watch someone who I consider, you know, like a sculptor. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who really understands wordplay, timing, pacing. You know, I, I, I love the Carol Leifer, you know, Paul Provenza, oh, people yeah. like that. There was this, this is guy I like called Eddie Brill. I don't know if you've heard of him. <laughs> and I, uh... I, weirdly enough, I get his mail. They keep delivering his mail. To my <laughs> and I, I, I open it. I have to admit, I open it, you know. But no, Provenza. You know, that's and that's illegal, are, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You don't know the kind of mail I get. But Leifer and Provenza are two of my favorites, you know. And, um, They've always been two of my favorites, but Provenza once had a bit about the dictionary that I thought was one of the classic bits of all time. And it really was mm-hmm. my right up my alley for the kind of material I did. And I begged him, you know, this was way early on in the eight, late mid to late 80s, like when you were starting as well. And uh, I said, mm-hmm. uh, Paul, you know, that bit is so he says, look, you have a bit about the yellow pages that I can't i lose sleep overnight that i didn't come up with it i'll trade you and i went nah you keep the dictionary and i'll keep the yellow pages and it was uh <laughs> but yeah i i really respect that that kind of craft 
that uh, that Leifer and uh, Provenza, you know, do. It, 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 it was an interesting thing because I, I know that we, we always appreciate what, what another person does. You know, when we see someone performing the art form at a high level, you just sit there as another practitioner. You look at it and you appreciate it, you know, as a fan and also as a, an artist in the same genre. But every once in I, I want to ask you this because you got a couple of years on me in, in the stand-up game. Mm-hmm. Was there any, I mean, you just talk, talked about what, what Provenza did. Did you ever have a comic? Or I'm, I'm talking about early on right after you started, where you watched them and they literally made you question your existence. Yes. <laughs> I remember I remember the moment very clearly. I had started in the late 70s in college. I was in an improv group and we were a sketch group and we were very wildly successful at a time when Saturday Night Live just started and and, and we were we were we, we were doing really well for ourselves and we worked really hard and it it showed it paid off it showed. And some of our friends we went to school with were doing stand-up, and we kind of joined them. And I did that for a while, and then I quit after college. And then in 1984, I started again. Um, I ran this comedy club where I was earlier tonight. It was called The Paper Moon. I started comedy there at this venue. And it eventually, I couldn't run it anymore because I was traveling the world, and I didn't. So I gave it to Barry Katz, who ended up calling it the Boston Comedy Club. So... I started the venue mm. four years before it became the Boston Comedy Club, and it was called the Paper Moon. So I had was doing it. And I was booking the shows, and and uh, it was amazing. If you look at the lists that I found, some lists of some of the bookings, it's incredible the people we had in their infancy. And I remember one night I had Tony V from Boston on, and he brought his friend and our, you know our mutual friend Bobcat Goldthwait in. And so, of course, he did a set on the show. And I said to myself, you know, I think that I should think about a different career. I really said, you know, look, I'm pretty good at this and I'm enjoying it, but I'll never be that good. And why should I stay in this? And I was ready to quit again. Honestly, it was he was so smart and so brilliant and so provocative that I said, this is what comedy is about. And I was ready to pack it in. And luckily I didn't. How about yourself? Is there someone or a moment like that for you? You're not going to, you're not going to believe me. There are two people. You're not going to believe this. You're absolutely Bob not going to believe this. One of them. Wait, he walked into a comedy club where I just walked off stage. He was doing the tower theater mm. and he walked in and I killed. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. Bob, Cat, we have a Tom Kenny comes in with him. Right. Tom cat. Well, and he goes up and eviscerates the place. <laughs> right. <laughs> then he brings Bobcat Goldthwait up. Now, remember, this is 80s Bobcat Goldthwait, okay? Right. With the hair and the clothes. So, and the, and the uh, so they, you know, I was like, oh, man. And this is the, the height of the, you know, when he just became Bobcat. So he, they go, and yeah, I'm going to bring up my friend Bobcat Goldthwait. And the audience is like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you get, you get, you know, this is this is a Philadelphia audience. They're going, yeah, yeah, look, buddy, yeah, right. There's no way in the world Bob can't go. Nah. And turn around. <laughs> I told you, I was, and he goes on the stage and smashes this place. And I'm sitting in the back, going, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good salesperson. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I had the same exact. I was like, oh. You know that those guys and the other one was Emo Phillips. 
and all emo Phillips. Yeah, one of the smartest mm. and most generous people in show business in comedy. He was just so giving and so caring and so smart, and uh, you know, and still is. I I still keep in touch mm-hmm. with him, and he's just a just an amazing guy. I saw him last year. I hadn't seen him. Uh, there was at the Boston Comedy Festival after thing that he was there and just a good guy you know it was really really nice to see you know what we were talking about tom kenny they're all from upstate new york syracuse area and tom Mm -hmm. kenny and bob goldthwaite were you know best friends and they went up to audition for barry crimmins and barry was running a club and they were kids they were young they were teenagers and barry's like what are you doing here and they go we're the guys you called and he put them on and he loved them and the three of them got the nicknames. You know, Barry Crimmins was Bearcat, Tom Kenny was Tomcat, and Bob Bobby Goldthwait was Bobcat. And that's how they got their names. Oh, and then, yeah. And and then oh, and then Barry Crimmins was going to move to New York City to do comedy, but he ended up making uh, getting a ride, like hitching, and getting a ride. And the guy stopped in Boston, and Barry ended up just decided to move to Boston because he saw it as a sign. And then he invited Bobcat and Tomcat to come to Boston to do some sets. And then they eventually moved there. And it was a great scene in that era. And I was lucky enough to be able to perform with those guys in their infancy. Now, when you travel, obviously you've been everywhere. In your travels, and I'll talk about... <laughs> yeah, you've been around the world and I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not far off. More, I've been more yeah, yeah, yeah than anything, you know. <laughs> I'm curious because I see you're a New York guy. I'm a Philly guy. And I when I moved to Los Angeles, the only time I've never felt, I didn't feel any culture shock when I went to New York, except for the fact that I was 17 and it was huge mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. It was, it was right. New York. But when I went to Los Angeles, it was a different type of culture shock because now I had been a professional and you know how it is when you get to the point where you're actually paying your light and car bills with jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you're not, uh, you're not, you know, you're not going to really, I mean, I had, you had, you, we, we both done bars and strip clubs, correct? Mm-hmm. You know? And so, you know, when, when you went to, when you think about comedy in New York, because you had you were established there, you were established in Boston and New York, then you went to Los Angeles. I'm assuming you had to have been in the early, the mid '80s. I went there in 1986 went... to do Star Search, and Star um, Search, right? And I vowed to at least go to the comedy clubs and try to pass. And I passed at both of them, the, the improv and the comedy store. But the comedy, the improv told me that I had to move there. And the comedy store said to me, which was the following night, said, you can work here anytime you come to L.A. So I went with the comedy store. And, event, and you, mm-hmm. know, I, you know, I started stand-up again in 84. So here I'm in 86 out there. And then Sam Kinison, who I was so blessed to have as a mentor, because he was such a brilliant comic and treated me and a bunch of us really, really well, like brothers. And, you know, he um, convinced me to move out there because, and there was a lot of work to be had. I, Mitzi Shore put me in the apartment building behind with her daughter and another friend of ours, Tom, we split this house and uh, I lived literally behind the comedy store. So the comedy store was my living room 
And every night mm-hmm. I was there every night that I wasn't on the road every night. And I would sometimes get three spots a night in every one of the rooms. And one night, the story you told earlier um, about Goldthwait was one of the greatest nights of my life. I was on stage having a decent set and they handed me a note. When you're done, bring up Richard Pryor. And <laughs> I thought I, I couldn't breathe for a second. I couldn't breathe. And then I said, Okay, finished this joke, finished it, got a laugh, said, ladies and gentlemen, this next guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a great comic. Put your hands together for Richard Pryor. And the audience <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, you could just, the <laughs> same story of the Philadelphia thing. And as he made his way through the crowd, you heard like cheering and cheering. And, <sighs> and then they went nuts. And he, <laughs> I handed him the mic, shook his hand. He said, nice job, kid which he could have said, you know, mm-hmm. sugar frosted flakes. It didn't matter to me. It was Richard <laughs> Pryor. And it was I got to stand in the back of the room and watch the master go to work. The funny it's it's it, it's really weird. It's really weird. Uh, we, we, we have a, I remember seeing I, I, somebody called me and goes they, when, I, when I was living in there in the 90s, they go, you know, Richard's on stage. And I went. You know, I don't need to be on the phone with you right now. And I hung up. <laughs> Get I ran there. down the steps. I parked. I parked uh, by the pink dot illegally mm, uh, yeah. down the street. Yeah. And and I go. In, I go in the store. I said, Richard, I want to see Richard. And I leave my car here. He goes, Oh, I wish I could go. You can't go. Can I leave my car? Uh. Yes. I said, I promise you, I'll buy twenty dollars worth of stuff. When I come back, if you leave, like I can leave my car here. He goes, okay. I run right. back. I watch Richard. He's he's. This is near the end. He's he's in the wheelchair. Yeah. He's still. He was still better than like ninety eight percent of the people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. He was incredible. You know, and he comes down. Oh God. He comes down, and I and I'm, I'm I'm looking at him, and I'm. It's like. It's it's, it's like it's like if, if Mount Rushmore just jumped off and started <laughs> <laughs> walking towards you, and I'm going, oh my! I just I was like, I, just want, I, was, I almost wanted to go. Would it be okay if I just wave my hands and and like so some of the air circulating around you, I could oh. like breathe it in? Would that be all right? Oh my you know? god! <laughs> yeah, because that I felt that, I was, that yeah, because it's just weird when you see these people. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. But that was the beauty of you know we're talking about the late you know 86 through 90s when i lived there pretty you know much half the time you know i kept my apartment in new york and split it with two comics and i ended up um mm-hmm. you know staying at behind the comedy store and then living in robert schimmel's old apartment which was near fairfax high school so i was every night watching the greatest comics in the world you know and there was you know mm-hmm. roseanne and uh Paul Mooney and Louis Anderson. And I mean, it was just Jim Carrey and, you know, famous people and non-famous people who were just the best at what they did. Taylor Negron. That's how I first saw Robert Schimmel, you know, and of course, every night the show would end with Sam Kinison and he was always inventive and did new things. And, and I got to work every night and, you know, and that stage time really was, you know, valuable. And we partied like crazy, but I never partied before the show. I really, <laughs> I dedicated, because I love the comedy so much, I dedicated myself to the stand-up and then partied like a maniac afterwards. I absolutely love Sam Kennison. Yeah, I understand. I mean, you know, because like, I started the year the first album came out. mm and so when I went out and I literally watched them on Saturday Night Live and the next day 
I went down and bought his first album. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, I don't know what I just saw, but whatever it is, it's worth 12 bucks to me because I'm going to go buy this album. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that shows that uh, I'm much older than you <laughs> because my first album, I think, was a dollar <laughs> and it was Carlin after I saw him on The Tonight Show. You know. Uh, that's a that's a he see when I when I spoke of Mount Rushmore when I spoke of Richard Richard Pryor Mount Mount Rushmore, my route Mount Rushmore has three people on it. It's the holy trinity of comedy. Mm-hmm. These are like gods to me, and I love them. And I literally have everything they all released: Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Bill Cosby. Yeah, there you go. Those are three. Of course, I have all of, I have all of Sam stuff too. Yeah, yeah, but, it's, you know, it's just really weird. Jonathan <laughs> Winners, Jonathan Winners, and Lily Tomlin, and you know, you know, there are so there for me. It's hard to pick four. It really is, you know. I mean, and then you go to mm-hmm. people like Chris Rock or Norm Macdonald, or mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's you know, to, and Joan Rivers, you know, who should be on Mount Rushmore, who also helped me with oh, my God. very first, you know, Letterman set. She was, you know, that she actually I met I met her once. Uh, with a bunch of comics and then years later I ran into her at the airport in Milwaukee she was coming from working the Milwaukee Grand Palace and I was working the local comedy club and we were both heading home to New York and I sat with her for a little bit and told her I was going to be doing Letterman soon and she switched seats with the person next to me on the plane and asked me to go and went over my set with me and she she says all right let me hear it I go what she goes the set let me hear the set that you're going to do on Letterman and she gave me such great advice and she helped me crush. And I've always loved her for that alone, you know, but, uh, but, you know, so she's on my Mount Rushmore. There's so there's so many, you know, Robert Klein, you know. Um, oh, geez. He's yeah. another one. I have all of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it, it's, it's, it's really weird because yeah, I, as far as I didn't get to meet uh, Miss Rivers, but I did get her book enter talking. Yes. Chapter 10. How does a comedian, you know, when you talk about a comedian gelling, mm. I read that chapter, I think, 17 billion and six times. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Who, and you because know, who it, I think, it, it, it's just, yeah. And you know who I think is okay. the greatest comic that is out now? And there's nobody in second place, and people don't know this name that well. Paula Poundstone is the best live comic i've ever seen and i sat with a couple other comedians who were really world famous who are i would just be doing more name dropping by mentioning them we all agreed that she's the best comic we've ever seen live i mean only cosby i saw him live for at radio city music hall and i laughed for two hours and 15 minutes without stopping um but paula poundstone is one of the most ingenious comedians i've ever seen live she's just spectacular you you're not going to get any arguments from me. Yeah, because I you know I've yeah, I've seen I've seen because the thing is those three the, I've mentioned those three because those were the three that first of all obviously the high level art of artistry, but those are the first three that were kind of the soil, mm-hmm. you know, that made me go I've got to do this. And then obviously you you, you run into the Louis Andersons and the George Wallaces, yeah, you know, and people like and and you start to love those guys. Now I, I brought up the L A because I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about this because you would. When you think in terms of stand-up comedy, uh, New York versus Los Angeles, you know, it seemed, I mean, obviously the culture is different because they're on different coasts, but, but do you think one is more conducive to the art form 
of stand-up comedy than the other one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard for me to be a judge only because I, I'm a New Yorker. You know, I lived part of my life mm-hmm. in Florida and part of my life in Boston for college. I went to junior high school and high school in South Florida. But I think that there's no more artistic place in the country than New York City. And there are other cities that are mm-hmm. artistic, like Philly and like Austin, Texas, and like Chicago, Seattle, Denver, you know, and there, there's some incredible cities in America and those uh, Minneapolis, you know, and it's only because of the people who are running the scenes in these cities, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I love those. But New York is definitely, see, to me, L.A. is a color photo, you know, and New York is a black and white photo. And New York is this, mm-hmm. has this, you know, sort of soul to it where it's, you know, this is where you come to, you know, a lot of us casting people used to say we get our actors from New York and we bring them to L.A. Because that's where all the cameras were in L.A. And it's that's where show business mm-hmm. is. But New York is where Nina Simone in my heart lives. You know what I mean? I, the, the soulful, mm-hmm. the soulful artist comes from New York. And because of the the no bullshit sort of atmosphere that you get in New York. But, you know, I'm a bad person to, to answer this because I'm an, a New Yorker who, you know, loves New York so much. And, you know, I mean, maybe if I grew up in Chicago or L.A., I would say differently. I've had friends in L.A. argue with me that L.A. is the better place. But to me, it's New York. It's always been New York. It, it has in the past and it's going to and it's going to continue to be New York even after this pandemic uh, blows away whether if it, even if it takes a year or so whatever well as an objective person from philadelphia okay i've lived in new york during the 80s because a friend of mine had an apartment was never there gave me the keys and said have uh, had a kid which was fantastic yeah got a great apartment for no for no money for most of the 80s and then and, and i lived in los angeles i think that when you go to New York, everybody that I've known and my friends that are in New York now, essentially it's they love the art form itself so much that essentially it's almost all about how can I get better at this? Yeah. You know, I just have to get better at this. When I lived in Los Angeles, the people that were all about the craft itself and no shade to my Los Angeles friends. And I'm, I want to say that because there's, quite a few people who listen to this uh, podcast in Los Angeles. And I want to let you know that uh, don't take this personally because I don't want to get beaten up by hundreds of people. Or people. There's probably like 3,000 people in Los Angeles going, a, yeah. A, and... You don't want to get taken out of a truck and beaten up by a bunch of your peers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show up and there'll be, be like 5,000 people going, yeah, we were listening to you, your smart mouth punk. And now that you're back, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so just, I don't regret any of my time in L.A. In fact, <laughs> David Letterman went to L.A. because he knew that's where you had to be at the comedy store in order to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's why people went mm-hmm. to L.A. Because, you know, it's not, you know, but if you're a pure stand up, New York is is the is the motherland. It, 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 because I, everybody that I know, essentially, when I went out there, I, I, I know this is going to sound stupid. I, I, and I, I'm going to admit it in front of a, okay. I went to Los Angeles because I wanted to get a sitcom just like everybody else. 
I wanted to get a sitcom because I wanted people to know who I was. I wanted people to know who I was. So when the sitcom was over, I could stand in front of people with a microphone and, and be a town to town joke salesperson. Mm-hmm. I love doing the other stuff, but comedy is com- like everything else would be like a good friend. Comedy is the wife that I'm happily married to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Brenner, <laughs> that's, that's David, Brenner David Brenner from Philadelphia kind of told me that. Mm-hmm. Um, that those same words he says you got to marry it and love it and cherish it and nurture it and and that's what comedy is to him and you know what's another interesting thing one of the biggest changes in my life that made me a better comedian or a better performer and understood the craft better and then the all of the little subtleties was working in europe because in in london and in dublin or even Galway, Ireland, like England and Ireland, the uh, the comedy scenes there are, are incredible. The comedy out of England has always been top-notch, brilliant uh, comedy, you mm-hmm. know, from, you know, Monty Python, and you, I can give you a thousand mm-hmm. names. But the crowds <laughs> are different because the crowds don't like pandering. And in America, I learned mm-hmm. this from working in Europe, is that American comics pander all the time because they don't have enough confidence in their material to get laughed. <laughs> so they create laughter and applause, more applause, you know, by going, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight, or let's hear it for the troops or, you know, there's none of that works in England. They, they like get off the stage. If you're going to, we want you to, to write material and make us laugh with your original stuff. We're not here to, we've, we've gone out before we don't need to applaud for going out, coming out tonight. You know, we don't need to make your job easier because you don't have the material to pull it off. And that made me a better comedian. And because my first line in London, the first time I ever went on stage, there, I said, it's great to be here in London. And without a pause, the, some guy, yelled, bullshit. And I was like, and luckily I had a comeback and I was something like, you're right. It's, it's just, it's a shithole and smells like urine. And then the crowd (laughs) cheered because I was able to come back immediately. And then they rode me uh, on their shoulders all the way out for my audition set for the comedy store in London. But I was so, it was such an American thing to do and sort of a bullshitty thing that we do in America is is pandering, pandering, pandering to the crowd, wanting their approval, you know, as opposed to just being, you know, doing what we loved and hopefully the audience will join in. And that made me a better comic. And then what is the, no, you, you do, you, when you, when you do those, I I was going to ask you about that next, actually, because I was curious about that because I see that it's now a world, we literally comics can do world tours now. Yeah. You know, we can play all of these places. So you, you said, and, and what about uh, Ireland? Um, oh, that's a country of storytellers. Australia. You know, and uh, there's a yeah. little club in Ireland. I, I mean, I've done some big venues like, you know, the Vicar Street Theater is a thousand people. And it was incredible. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous, you know. Um, but there's a little bar upstairs called Upstairs at the International Bar. And it's a room that's tiny, tiny with a little tiny puppet theater looking stage. With no microphone, they seat 50 people comfortably and they squeeze 100 people in the room and they put people on the floor of the stage and you just go up there and have a chat with the audience. And it is one of the greatest comedy clubs on the planet. 
There used to be one in Paris that was uh, at the Hotel du Nord. And it unfortunately is no longer there. But they did stand up mm-hmm. once a month and they used a, an English speaking comic, say Australian, Brit, uh, Irish or American. Me, uh, um, you know, a couple of other Rich Hall, um, Tom Rhodes. A few of us were the Americans who would go over there and work. And it was a bunch mm-hmm. of um, expats, Brits, Irish, Australians, Americans who were mm-hmm. over there and starving for English comedy. And once a month they do it and they would pack the joint and you would go, they, you had to do an hour and a half on your own. And I was doing two hours every night. I didn't have two hours. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was, it was, so I, I became a better comic because I was forced to work in other cultures. Now that's the other thing. When you write material for other cultures, you write human jokes Jokes that have to do with that every human being can like if I wrote a joke about talking in my sleep, then everyone doesn't matter which country you're in, you'll get it. But if I write a joke about, yeah, so I'm in Times Square, you know, some people would get it, but, it, you know, it'd be too local. Or how about that, you know, TV show that we have that you don't get in your country or you do a joke like that. You're forced to write material from a human perspective and also, you know, the people who speak English, you know, I did a lot of wordplay or doing mm-hmm. wordplay and they appreciated that because that's the kind of style and kind of fun that they have. So I, I luckily fit in well. It's really cool when you go different places and you have a, a myriad of experiences and sometimes you notice and sometimes you don't where every time you have a different experience, you go to a different city or different type, you know, different country different uh, types of audiences, they, they always, it's like something alters your comedic DNA, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you become a little bit better and it's almost imperceptible. And then you notice all of a sudden, you know, you're like Iron Man, you have these extra skills <laughs> and you go, where the hell did this missile launcher come from? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. Like I didn't have this extra missile skills. launcher elbow extra. yesterday. That's right. Extra skills. That's a great way to put it. You know, Brenner told me, he yelled at me once because I was at Caroline's for the 1230 show and he had done the eight and the 10. And I said, you know, and I, he let me open for him and he doesn't really have people open for him. I did like five minutes at the beginning just to get the crowd going. So I'm doing the late show. And he said, um, I said, damn it. You know, there's only gonna be 15 people in this 300 seat room. And he yelled at me, he says, you know, those 15 people paid to, to babysitters and, drove their car in and they're, you know, you give them the greatest show you've ever given in your life. He said, some of my best shows are for just a handful of people in the audience. And he yelled at me and, you know, he was right. And I had one of the best shows of my mm-hmm. life for those 15 <laughs> people, you know, because he inspired me to take it to the next level. And so you, you know, you learn from watching you know, the best, like, you know, with Chappelle, for instance, you know, I, Chappelle is one of the greatest <laughs> comics ever. And he, you know, and there's, there's room for him on, on the, uh, the greatest comics of, you know, up in South Dakota, but the, um, but what he did is he came out and he told his truth and he never stopped doing that. And I think this, he's like one of like, you know, a handful of people who did that. And just came out and told the mm-hmm. truth. And he didn't try to please people. He did what made him laugh. And and he laughed all the way through it. And when people say, well, you know, I don't like, 
um, what he's doing, I'll go, well, he's not here to please you. Go watch somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the way. Yeah, I've, it's it's I've, so I've, weird. Yeah, that's the way I've learned to be as a comedian. I'm not here to please the audience. If I please them, that's fantastic. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's like if like you go on a date with someone, you know, I remember what that was like. Um, you go on a date with someone <laughs> and, and you you're all you're doing is trying to please the other person. They're like, look, this person doesn't have their own backbone or their own strength or their own resolve. So, you know, you, that's the way you live life. You just be the best possible you and respect the audience and hold them in high regard. Like the, I remember the first time I went to um, Alabama, I did a gig in Birmingham and, you know, of mm-hmm. course all the cliches, the South and blah, 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 you know, and uh, it was one of the greatest gigs, the best audiences I've ever worked in my life because again, Brenner taught me to respect everyone um, and give them the benefit of the doubt and play to the highest, you know, play up. Almost like what Nelson Mandela once said. He said, you know, don't, you know, this is paraphrasing. He had said, you know, it's, you know, if you, when you're up top, stay up top and be that light. Don't come down and try to, you know, bring your sort of light down because that's condescending to the people you're bringing it down to. Those weren't his words, but it was, that's what he meant. Yeah, yeah I, I just... <laughs> It's really weird because that's when I, that's the first time I felt like an old guy because what Brenner did to you, mm-hmm. I did to some some kid comics that were they were coming to I was uh, uh, this was back when I was running a room, mm-hmm. and the audience was late and there was twelve people there and like, I didn't drive down there for this, and I almost gave him the uh, the Paulie to Rocky listen punk <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right you know? these fifteen people punk you know. Right. And uh, and I it was like yeah, like when you hear your father's voice, I heard all the older comics' voices to me. Listen, punk, you right. shut up and you get on that stage for those two people. Yeah, and I never forgot it. That was if we were doing a video podcast when you were telling that story about what Brennan was yelling at you, you would see me smiling and nodding my head. Right, because I'm going. Yeah, I, I had that vicious beating myself uh, a long time yeah. ago, and I was glad. Now, you know, I was now, glad. And, you know, these people are very honest with me, and they. And because they care about it so much and love the art form and love their job. And Brenner appreciated me. You know, uh, he was very good to me. You know, I found out some all these great stories. Like some of my heroes had said really nice things about me behind my back, which was, you know, it's of course, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, whatever job you have, if someone you respect talks highly of you, you know, you're walking, you know, 10 feet above the ground. So I'd heard all these great things from Brenner. And I trusted him because he I saw how hard he worked and he worked every day and he made more appearances as a stand up on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson than anybody else who did stand up. Um, David Steinberg, mm-hmm. I think, had and Bob Hope had the most performances ever as, you know, hosts and guests and all that other kind of stuff. But I think Brenner had the most. I think he had like one hundred and fourteen or one hundred and thirty six sets. And, you know, think how much how oh, yeah. many times how many times six or five minutes. That is, you know, it's, you know, 75 hours of, I don't know, I can't, my math isn't that as it used to be, as good as it used to be, but that's a lot of material. And these guys wrote every day. And even during the pandemic, I've been writing, trying to write something funny, something creative every day, because, you know, I was, it was beaten in my head by these incredible craftsmen in throughout my life. Now, what I want to find out, from you, uh, this is something I've always wanted to know too, because I've always 
when I meet comics that that I enjoy, that would include you, good sir. That's very um, lovely. I uh, the city yeah, of lovely yeah, cause, brothers. Uh, cause, cause, <laughs> yeah, because you remember, I, I told you these are people that that you know that, that there were people. There's a handful of people I've had on the podcast that you know when I refer to them as legend, and I and I called you that as well. Is because the comics that I that knew you were coming on, and obviously I've been around for a while. I look up to people and I enjoy their craft work. When I watched Letterman and I watched the comics that came on, this is when I did not know you were booking the show. Mm-hmm. I started to watch the comics that came on, and I noticed. I always thought there were there are different types of applause breaks. There's the applause break that comes from the momentum of a series of bits that are piled on top of each other. And there's a yes. crescendo, it's momentum. And then, <laughs> yes, yes, I know that and, one and, well, yeah. And, oh, yes. And I remember I was watching Letterman and I started noticing that there was a lot of the second type as well, which was they love the jokes, but there's a different type of applause for, ah, <laughs> we've been carried to the, to the crescendo. And then there's the applause that comes after the joke because not only did they find it funny, they were impressed because they could see the craft. They, yes. they could see the sculpting. They appreciated it. And I'm going, who the hell is booking these comics? Because I said, I guarantee you, who's ever booking these comics, not only have are they a comedian, I bet they're a damn good one. Yeah, well, Letterman was and you know, a comedian, book. so he he loved the craft. And, you know, he loved the craftsmen and craftswomen that, that did performed and you know it was a small group of people um that fit mm-hmm. into that sort of realm there were some incredible comedians that i wanted a book but that i couldn't because they didn't fit the show you have to do you know it's your job is it's not the eddie brill show so i was booking the david letterman show and you know he loved like a guy like jim gaffigan and you know who's it's mm-hmm. a perfect example of someone you know the, the person he had the most ever was jake johansson and just those two names alone you know, they're just two of the greatest craftsmen in in comedy writing. And he appreciated that, you know, in his own show. It's the combination of smart and silly that uh, that I like that mm-hmm. he liked. You know, that's why I like British comedy so much. That smart and silly that uh, Brian Regan brings to the table or Wendy Liebman brings to the table. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, those kind of uh, comics were the ones that he liked the most. And every, you know, I, and there were comics who they would have like one weird, goofy joke. And I would almost book them because I wanted Letterman to see, hear that joke because <laughs> I knew he would like them. I remember Karen Rontowski had this one joke and, you know, she wears the Santa Claus underwear because every time she's in a good mood or bad mood, it's always Christmas in her pants or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. I just knew that Letterman was going to laugh and he did and he couldn't stop talking telling that joke every once like every week or two he'd say as christmas in my pants you know i remember tommy jonigan had one joke that he would repeat over and over again hugh fink had this bobby um you know this third base coach bit where you go come on bobby come on bobby and letterman would just say that all the time because he just loved (laughs) the silliness of that come on bobby and uh, Harry Hill, the comedian from England, uh, he would say, look, mm-hmm. at, uh, this is the best material I had. And he would open the lining of his coat and Letterman would do that <laughs> all the time. He did that all the time. You know, he did it because he paid homage to the great craftsmen and women of comedy. 
that that had to have been pretty difficult to to do that job because, I mean, even if you're just hosting a show at maybe the Boston Comedy Club or something like that, and you have the list in your hand and there's 25 names on it, people are going to follow you to the bathroom to find out when they're on next. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I know this is a personal com- experience. But, but here's the here's the thing. I'm a comic, so I understand that. And I made sure mm-hmm. that I was the booker that I would want if I was auditioning for a show. You know, because I remember mm-hmm. in in the days I would audition or be in a room and the comedy booker from the big show would come in and he he or she would hide out in the bar and and they, you do your set and then they'd leave and then you never knew what would happen. What I did was I'd come there early. I talked to all the comics who were doing the thing and asked if there's any questions, please be feel free to ask. And most people are, were afraid or not, maybe not afraid, but, you know, they didn't expect that. And so they didn't know what to ask. And, you know, I always gave my email address and said, hey, if anyone has any questions to the bookers of the clubs, have them call me in advance and we can go over stuff or whatever, because I'm a comic and I know how important it is. And I know how how thrilling it was for me to do my first letterman or my first TV or whatever. And uh, and then I I take extensive notes throughout the whole audition. And then afterwards, I would stay to the end. And to any comic who wanted to hear the notes, I would give it to them. Now, that was a mistake in a way because that's what I wanted. But that's not what other people wanted. Mm. You know, I that was one of the hard parts is because like as a comic, I had auditioned for Letterman a few times and didn't get it. and I didn't understand why. And I really wanted to know why, because I got big laughs and, you know, this and that. And one time one of the bookers fell off the chair laughing at one joke I had done. And I said, oh, I got the show. And then I didn't get the show. Um, so I wanted, so I did that, but you know, the comics, they really just wanted me to go, you got the show. They didn't want to hear, well, you know, this joke doesn't really fit the kind of set that we would do or, you know, and I thought that would be helpful. It turned out to be like, you know, you can't, you can't be perfect to everyone, but I thought, you know, if I'm going to offer that, you know, you're welcome to come and, and, and listen, and many, many, many comics who came and took the notes and took them seriously, Came And I told them all, I said, there's no rules, you know, just be the best, funniest Jew you can be. And if and 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 have the attitude like, you know, fuck Eddie Brill. And if he doesn't like what I do, somebody else will. And I saw when I saw that attitude kind of thing, then I knew that the comedian really cared and was, you know, had a strength and a, a resolve that, you know, was that made them interesting, you know. I saw comedians that weren't ready yet, but I knew that they were going to be great because I saw they had that something, that soulfulness, that below the surface, you know, power that came out. And, uh, you know, I've always for some reason, I've always known I've always had that, you know, when I booked the comedy club in the city, you know, like, you know, I booked a lot of people before they were famous, you know, and then I ran the comedy festival Mm -hmm. for Nebraska for Johnny Carson and I, you know, 90% of the people that I booked over all those 10 years that I did the thing, you know, 90% of them have gone on to major careers. And uh, so I'm pretty, pretty proud and confident in that kind of thing. I've always been able to feel mm-hmm. the rhythm of the room and the, you know, I'm not right 100% of the time ever. I can never be right. And th- thankfully, you, know, you can learn from that. <laughs> but I really decided to be the the booker I wanted to be and then you know and that's all I could do and that's what I did so it wasn't easy but 
I was always there for the comedians because I was a comic and I knew what it was like. And I didn't, I never, I respected every single person who auditioned except if they stole material. Yeah, it, it, it's, in your position, it, it just sounds like somebody who had, it was like a player who, a Pro Bowl player who then became a coach. And now you're coaching people who played the position you used to play, even yeah. though technically you were still playing. But at the same time, I was still playing. Like I was Pete Rose without yeah, the betting. Exactly. I was, you know, I was, the, I was the, like Stan Musial. I was the player coach for old people, you know, mm. and I, I was, you know, still playing. Now I did Letterman 10 times, but you know, the first six or uh, so I did, I wasn't the booker. But, you know, I went mm -hmm. like seven, eight years without doing the show, even though I would have loved to have done it every year. But because I wanted to do the show, but, you know, I had a, I, it was so, so many comics auditioning and so few spots open. And then one year Letterman mm -hmm. said, you know, you haven't done the show in a while. I go, yeah, because I'm putting these other people on. And he said, do the fucking show. <laughs> you know, he's like, I want you to do stand up <laughs> on it. And so when I did the show, I always wrote a brand new set for the show brand new every time and i um i wanted to knock it out of the the, the park because you know if i'm gonna book it these comics are gonna watch me and go yeah he's booking it and look how he sucks you know what i mean i wanted it to be like all right you know he did he's he, he's a pro and he's you know i'm glad he's doing the booking yeah no pressure eddie no pressure it's yeah. the entire industry staring at you no big deal yeah, exactly. And I had to get out of my head about yeah. that. I had to get out of my head because if I continued to be in that head, I would get in my way. And, uh, you know, so I didn't. I just wrote as best as I could. I had a couple of people that I went to to, for, to help me, to help critique me. Of course, I had to get everything approved mm -hmm. by the producers of the show and the standards and practices and all that. But uh, it was a thrill. That was the best. The Ed Sullivan Theater is the best stage I've ever been on in my life. How many people are in there? Was it four or five hundred seats? Four, four ninety-two. Four ninety-two. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's like a that's like a gigantic comedy club. Yeah, and always full. <laughs> yeah, always full and always raucous and not always smart crowds. You know, not always great crowds, mm -hmm. but. You know, a lot of times people are on vacation and drunk or people on vacation and they were tired from walking the city all day. And sometimes they mm -hmm. weren't great, but uh, it was kind of my job at the show is to warm them up, get them, bring them up to a certain level. And sometimes let him go, this crowd is not that smart. And I would go, I can't. And he'd yell at me and I'd say, I can't make them smart. I could get them energized, but <laughs> I can't make them smart. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's you know, really weird because I, I was I was going to ask you because you did the warm up too. Yeah, that I did for seventeen years. And uh, I did a million I, other things. I did the I I uh, I think six or eight times. You know, I got to do the opening because Alan Coulter wasn't there. From New York, the greatest city in the world. You know, that was one of the biggest thrills for me. I did the I produced segments. I was did a couple of skits. Letterman would send me out to the audience to bring somebody a thing and I would get paid for that because you get paid if you're on camera. And, you know, I did. a And I, I was at his desk at every commercial break, either just talking about life or sports or the Beatles or, you know, coming up with an idea for the next segment or whatever. So it was it was I was an incredible I had an incredible time there, 17 years with in the, one of the greatest theaters in the history of 
you know, show business with one of the greatest broadcasters in the history of show business. And also, in- everyone who worked there was the best at what they did. Like the main cameraman, Dave Dorsett, he was Walter Cronkite's cameraman. You know, it was like the best oh. lighting people, the best producers, the writers came from Harvard. You know, it was like all these, you know, the best, you know, sound guy, the best, you know, whatever. It was, it, he surrounded himself with only the best and it forced you to take your game to the next level which was really fun to play on that kind of level you were on the broadcast dream team yeah i'm very proud very <laughs> proud of those 17 years yeah. yeah as you should be be honest with you i mean jesus i mean hell heck one of those years is enough to yeah <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, one day you know, <laughs> you know? Now I'm gonna ask you now when you uh now when you what was the first big was Letterman the first big late night program that you did as a stand-up comedian? Yeah, I did Star Search in eighty-six mm-hmm. and and uh I didn't do Letterman until ninety-seven. I did British TV shows. I did really big, big British shows and I did Australian television. I, mm-hmm. I've done like comedy in a bunch of different countries. I've been, I've, been, I've done, you know, uh, in Amsterdam and in Paris and in Bangladesh and Hong Kong and all these different crazy places. But oh, I've done, oh, I did TV oh, oh, oh. and a lot of, the, I know, I know a lot of these things, but <laughs> I would say, I would say I did a bunch of local New York shows like New York at night. There was a show mm-hmm. and I did a lot of, mm-hmm. I did, there was a Boston show, Mike McDonald, the great, Mike McDonald, the comedian who mm-hmm. I went to college with, um, who had, you know, was really great to comics and put all of us on television. He had a cable show and we got some of our first stand up experiences through our good friend and my college buddy, Mike McDonald. So, you know, I did a, I did a lot of television stuff, but the Letterman show was my first network. It was I, I Star Search was network. So but it was my big major television debut. And I was excited about that. It was, it was was that the one that which one do you think made you the most were you more nervous for your first letterman or when you showed up for a star search the first time uh, uh i never thought of that um yeah star search i was yeah star search i was just i don't know i i was i was kind of nervous for star search it's only you only get to go yeah. for two minutes you know and uh and i went out there and i thought i did well and i didn't win and uh but I, I had fun and it was really cool. You know, the Letterman show, it wasn't that I was nervous. I worked so hard on the set that I was ready to go. And then I kind of I got bumped because um, I Ooh. forgot why they had um, and it, the, the director of uh, Men in Black, who's a really brilliant guy. And his name just slipped my mind. I can picture him. And he was so funny that they kept him for an extra segment. They bumped the comedian. I worked there. So, yeah, but I just started working there that year. So it wasn't like, you know, they were going to, you know, because I was in the running to do the show as a guest before I started working there. I was getting really close. And then when I started working there as the warm up, you know, they were going to give me a spot. And luckily I had a very good first spot. And then they let me do a bunch. But I, I was kind of, it's not, you know, I'm on that stage every night and the band is on my right and they're my friends that I hang out with. And Letterman, who was very supportive, was on my left, you know. And so, and I knew that stage so well that I was, I wasn't so much nervous. That I was, was your home. 
Yeah. <laughs> the adrenaline was really big the night I did Letterman the first time. The adrenaline. Mm-hmm. I, I talked a little too fast. Um, and Joan Rivers actually told me to slow it down. And I did slow it down some. Um, but it was... It was yeah, I, I yeah. It's a hard question to ask. To go back, it's fun to go back and to think of the mood I was mm-hmm. in. Star Search, I was sort of out of my element. I was flown to L.A. I didn't really know. I knew like two people out there. Uh, Monica Piper, who was a great comedian, let me stay on her couch, and uh, you know, it, it was nice. Uh, it, I, it was cool. Um, it was October of '86, around the time the Mets were going into the World Series. Everybody was talking about Star Search. Yeah, they, <laughs> you know, that was that when was, that show was on. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Big remember. Man Star Search. You know, everybody. Yeah, you know, there's a uh, an interesting moment because you know Ed McMahon's on your right and you're doing your thing, mm-hmm. and when they announce your numbers, you got to look forward because they put the numbers underneath your when you're doing it, but. At the show and the theater, the numbers were on the board just above and to the right of Ed McMahon. So I thought I did really, really well. And when they said Eddie Brill and it was like three and a quarter stars or whatever it was, I looked to my right because it was like, what? I thought I knocked that out of the park. (laughs) And I looked to the right and it looked like I was going, Ed McMahon, what the fuck? Didn't you? see what i did that was the that's what it looked like but i was looking at the scoreboard in sort of a i was disillusioned because i thought i did better but you know in retrospect it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter you know i got to i got television out of it and uh and and i went up against my dear friend sue kalinsky who's a brilliant comedian who did very well on the show and it wasn't uh it wasn't there was nothing bad about it you know it was pretty cool and I want to ask you this, because uh, uh, I'm curious, because I know that usually when I meet comics, there's always, I like the origin story, because everybody comes, we all, once we get into this fraternity of picking up the microphone and uh, talking to people with a light in our face, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's like we become essentially all comics are the equivalent of cousins. Yeah, you know, uh, yes. as soon as we walk into the room with other comics, that you know, you 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 understand that person because they took the same vicious beating that first year <laughs> that you took. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. That you know, and, uh, and that we've all we, been I, I, <laughs> we all we've all everybody's everybody. I know that January eighth, nineteen eighty six, Comedy Works Philadelphia, one twenty six Chestnut. Mm-hmm. I was number sixteen. Wow killed yeah and and being 17 stupid i'm thinking oh this is easy you're right oh man that's what happened oh, i should have my sitcom yeah that's what happened to me i went out the crowd was mostly my friends and the comics were mm-hmm. mostly my friends it was like dennis leary and stephen wright and paula poundstone and you mm-hmm. know and friends of mine who were you know in college with you know steve ball was this very funny guy and you know, it's all our friends from school and all the audiences are friends. So I went out there and did this shitty act. And they, my friends laughed like I was a king. And I w- walked out of there, you know, five feet off the ground and thought, I got this. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it yeah, was like that laugh. Clang, that clang, laugh clang, very clang, familiar. Clang. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, put, I, put, I put it to you this way. I'm five foot eight. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. I walked on the stage mm-hmm. five foot eight. I came off. I think it was about seven two. <laughs> I walked. <laughs> I you walked on Will stage Kendall. the second time. <laughs> I walked on the stage the second time. Except, keep in mind, I had built myself up, so I was seven two when I walked off. By the time I came back, I was ten six. Yeah, uh, building yeah, up in my right. I walked on stage, and I think, I mean, you know what a plank length is? Uh, plank length. <laughs> you know, I, like, like, I was like, I was the size of an atom. Oh <laughs> yeah, all right. I yeah. walked off. I was like, oh my god, what the hell? You know, what are they doing? Port the, the first the, the people that liked me the first time, there were 16 people that loved me. Now these 12 people are looking at me as if to say, listen, kid. Um God, you know. Good luck in sales. <laughs> like, that's that's cute. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You go back, pick up, you pick up your pick up your microscope, punk, and get out of yeah. here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You listen, science boy. Go back yeah. there. Now, now but I, I can't let you go without. I have to find. I got to get your origin story, man. I got to see. I got to find sure. out the soil tree came from. I have to know. You know, it's funny that now, you say you that. Just, uh, I, I I have done a lot of my own podcasts as well, and I have one that mm-hmm. is all of called OG Talk, which is about the organic grill in New York, and I have uh, like twenty five to thirty episodes of that. But the original podcast I did was called The Break with Eddie Brill. And there's only 11 episodes because I ended up doing something else and I had to stop. But it was exactly this kind of question because I was always curious how people started in their their origin story. You know, was your parents funny? Was your grandparents funny? Did you, were your brothers funny? Were you, did people, th- you know, and then I talked to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Gaffigan and Mario Cantone and Susie Essman and on and on. There's 11 of them. So, it's it, it's something that, you know, that I was very curious of. For me, in my house, my parents were very young. You know, they were 18 when they got married. They were like 20 when I was born. And they were really, they loved comedy. And they were just, and my mom was the funniest person on the planet. You know, uh, she mm. was funny until the day she passed. And she only passed a couple of years ago. And she was my best friend and hilarious and and was and loved my comedy and supported me the whole way. But she was very she was really loved laughing and watching comedians. And I remember um, my sister and I we were being babysat in this hotel we were visiting. And my mom and dad had come from seeing Buddy Hackett and they were walking in the room laughing and hugging like they were so in love because laughter does that to people. You know, you, when you laugh together, yes, you love together, you know. And I never forgot how happy my mom looked. And, you know, and here's the interesting part about that is they had to watch the show. The show was over. They had to pay the bill, come up through the the lobby, go up the elevators. And they were still laughing at the show, (laughs) like laughing. And I, I always wanted to make my mom laugh like that because she was so beautiful when, you know, always anyway, but she was so beautiful to me to watch her laugh and to be able to make her laugh was a a gift because all of us were funny in our house, sarcastic Mm -hmm. because of her. She was genuinely a hilarious person and not on purpose. You know, I'm everyone in my family's funny. I'm the only one who got paid for it, but, that's what sort of that's what sort of got me and then of course they let me watch the comics on the tonight show and 
you know, I remember seeing Carlin and, and that really, you know, because I was very much a Carlin type of human before I ever heard of George Carlin. Um, cause I would take index cards and I would do a lot of wordplay. Like I remember early, I was like a little boy, you know, with index cards and I would draw a picture of a salt shaker and a knife and I'd like assault with a deadly weapon, you know, and then, <laughs> you know, I would, and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And then, you know, I would like, there was a guy running and then there was a cross, you know, running as well. And I'm like running across, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm a genius. And and then I, you know, I changed it. Like I'd make names like, a, you know, Isabel ringing, you know, like I, I was always wordplay yeah. with me that I love. And that's why when I saw people who were really great with the language, like the Brits and like Carlin and those kind of people, um, they made me laugh the most. And it was, that's when I realized I, that's who I am. I'm, I found someone who does you know, who loves the words and the words dance in their heads. One of the coolest things in my life, and I've had a pretty incredible life. I'm very blessed. And one of, and I very rarely say blessed. That's how blessed I am in this scenario <laughs> is that I have met some of the most, the, my biggest heroes and have become friends with a lot of them, including Carlin meeting prior. I wasn't friends with him, but all the people along the way, but I know Dick Cabot really well. And he's an amazing human being and he's a wordsmith and his parents, yeah parents were English teachers. His father was an English teacher. And, and we've become, we're like, you know, seven years old when we hang out together, we laugh like children who are just frolicking and sitting in the schoolyard, having fun. And the fact that he is the kind of comic that, and kind of interviewer and humanitarian and hip cool guy, you know, he had Hendrix on before anybody else. And he had Sly and the family stone and he, and it's, you know, like all the other talk shows, they'd put the band on less. He'd open with the band with Janis Joplin or whoever, you know, he was very hip. So the fact that he, you know, he's a guy who appreciates the wordplay and that kind of stuff. That is the biggest, the biggest thrill of my life is the fact that I've, you know, I was able to meet some of these people and have them appreciate what I did. I, I have a million Carlin stories, three, especially, I'm not going to go into them, but they, where Carlin told other people how much he liked what I did. And, you know, that's all I need. That's, um, you know, I'm, if I never did comedy again, I'd be sad, but at least I know that the people I respected thought I was funny, thought I was talented. The only difference between you and me is I was just, listen, George, you're not leaving. I want you to stand right here. Where are you yeah. going? <laughs> I'm going to get my, I'm going to get my micro cassette so you can repeat that. So I can prove you said it. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I wish. I wish. I, you know, I have a, I have a voicemail from him. He was his girlfriend, Sally is amazing writer, a very funny human being. Uh, you know, they were together 10 years. He was married and then she passed from cancer and then he met Sally and he was completely in love. And he called me up and left a voicemail saying, you know, um, and, well, first he called me to say, and I got, I spoke to him. He said, I'd like you to teach my girlfriend to do stand up. And I was like, what? You're George Carlin. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but she's not going to listen to me, you know, which was very interesting. And he said, I know he said, I heard you were really the best at this and I like your comedy. Will you do it? So I says, uh, yeah, sure. And so he left, he, one day he left a message on my machine. I'd spoke to him before and he said, Hey Eddie, it's George. Just want to let you know that we're going to be by blah, blah, blah. And I just, I have that message saved, of course, because 
because you know yeah, even, the, right even if you said eddie it's george carlin fuck you i would be like oh i love you i might have asked him to say that on purpose yeah. all right that would have been better yeah because <laughs> essentially what, what you just described is like ah oh, eddie yeah this is uh this is michael jordan i was wondering could oh. you uh could you give my uh my son some basketball tips right um you you're michael what? jordan yeah <laughs> last yeah. time i checked maybe you should do that uh right I mean, I'm, I, mean, I appreciate i appreciate it i you know but i mean and i you know i mean if, if you compare me to everybody else I, I i take that but you know you're michael jordan i mean i don't but that's the funny but he thing. he was right. He was right. He said, you know, he, he said, Mike, <laughs> I'm, you know, she's not going to listen to me. So, you know, at least in his mind, you know, you think that, you know, you want someone outside of you, you know, it's, you know, I, and of course I was thrilled to, to give it a shot and we, we worked at it, but, you know, they lived in LA and we really didn't get to see each other much, but Sally and I have stayed friends all these years. And uh, in fact, she gave me a photo that, you know, of the last picture, uh, he took a selfie and sent it to her and she shared it with me. I promised, I promised I would never show, share it with anyone or make it public, but I have this great photo of George's very last photo. And I'm so, you know, again, there's that blessed word, um, that I got, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. You know, there's, I'm very happy that I've had this, I'm, you know, I made mistakes. I've, you know, I've had, you know, people come at me for reasons that, uh, you know, I don't understand why people can be so mean or so spiteful or vengeful. But 98% of my experiences in this life have been amazing and beautiful. And and I get to do what I love for a living. And I miss stand up. And I'm getting, you know, two weeks from now, I'm doing a outdoor gig in California. Um, but I really love stand up and I I'm so thankful that I get to do what I love for a living, you know, I really am. Yeah, I know what you mean. And before 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 we close up, I want to find out I got to ask you about New York. I haven't yeah. been there in a while and I saw like every time every, I obviously with the pandemic, I I keep I have this oh god, it's going to make, make me like an idiot. But uh <laughs> okay. It's okay. I'll I have this habit up. of I, I go <laughs> I go on the internet and any city that I live in, I look for dash cam videos of people mm. driving through the city so I can see what it looks like now. Cool. Um, I, yeah, I did it when I lived in LA. I have the, I saw I have I saw dash cam for somebody drove through my old neighborhood in Hollywood because I lived on Orchid Avenue, which is right around the corner from where they uh, from the Man Chinese from the Chinese Theater. Oh yeah, 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 right. From- so my apartment is still there. They ripped down everything and literally stopped at the apartment I used to live in. Mm. And so I saw, I saw a, a, a somebody doing a dash cam drive right through Manhattan. And the last time I was in New York was 2004. Okay, last time I was in New York for comedy was 2004, mm-hmm. I should say. Gotcha, that. okay. And after that, I was, doing, I was doing all these other stuff and trying to, you know, and all these other kind of things I was working on. But, and then I looked at it and I'm going, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, because I have a picture imprinted in my mind of what my New York looks like. And it was like looking at a friend that was sick because there was nobody there. It was just empty. Like, like I was waiting for Will Smith to walk out with a dog and a gun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you (laughs) You know, know, I I saw it differently because when it first happened, the sky started clearing up. The streets weren't packed. 
the birds were singing and it was not just birds singing. It was a ton of birds. New York had become mother nature had come through the New York and said, look, you guys have been very, very bad. Now go to your room and I'm going to clean up around here. You know what I mean? So we were stuck in our apartments while she was outdoors cleaning up the mess and resetting the button. So mm-hmm. I would sit on my stoop with my mask and I'd hear the birds chirping and the skies were clear and and it was so beautiful outside and there were nobody, no mm-hmm. cars on the streets and it was really nice and weird. And, you know, and when it's, you know, and all of this, these shots you see of New York and it's like this danger pit. It's not a danger pit. You know, they go, oh, be careful. Mm-hmm. There's all of these you know, rioting and stuff. And it was like two blocks of rioting in, you know, mm-hmm. downtown by City Hall. It's like in Seattle, you know, they're saying it is all this rioting and it's like two blocks of rioting. And it's just the cameras mm-hmm. only show those two blocks. So New York, you know, the, the crime was really down to practically nothing. But it's less crime mm-hmm. now than when Giuliani was mayor, you know. You know, so New York's not the there's more murder weirdly enough in the whole new york which is the eight million people in all the suburbs and i think people are desperate mm-hmm. and people are hungry and people are scared and i think that brings out the worst in people so instead of calming people who are living in hell and fear if you you know it's like fighting someone who's down it's like in, being in a war you know you're not gonna you don't mm-hmm. win in a war you know people die people are mm-hmm. you know that you you leave a lot of bad feelings but if you if you come through in a compassionate way when people are down there would be less crime there would be less rioting you know if when you know you know Colin Kaepernick you know had a peaceful protest if people got together and say well let's talk about this and let's find the compassion <laughs> here you know there wouldn't be any of this shit that's going on right now you know I mean, there, there's always going to be crime but New York is the crime in New York is so far less than when it used to be, even when Giuliani made it a little bit better. It's still less crime in New York than it is now. It's still a vibrant city. People are eating outdoors now. You can't go inside. So the streets are lit up and packed with people walking up and down the streets. And, you know, there's a, there's a fear and you're, I'm, I'm a lot more careful. I don't carry a lot of money with me, but enough that if I was robbed, that it would be like, oh, well, here's 40 bucks. At least I got something. You know what I mean? You know, um, so New York is not, is, don't believe people. I'll give you an example. I was in Hawaii two years ago doing an incredible series of gigs on the big island. The de- night I got there, the next day the volcano erupted. And it was a pretty big deal. It was in the southeastern part of the Big Island. I was 20 miles north. I didn't see it or feel it. There was an earthquake and that I felt from it. But I went, ended up working like crazy. I ended up working a ton. And no one was freaking out. And everyone was enjoying life. And everyone helped. Like we were going to put on a show for the people who were displaced because of the the volcano. And, you know, the whole everyone got together and and you know, took care of the people who were hurting. But on the news, they made it sound like, you know, run for your lives. And, you know, people were calling me up, Eddie, get home, get on a plane. I go, what are you talking about? I'm having the time of my life. 
so beautiful here. And the camaraderie among the people who are getting through this sort of tough time together is making it even more beautiful. So I don't, you know, it's a really long way to tell you New York's okay. We're going to be fine. We're always fine. We're fine. 9-11, you know, we we're fine after that. A friend of mine said, you know what happened after the pandemic of 1918? It was the roaring 20s. You know, so we're going to be fine. You know, it's not going to be easy. And there's going to be more crime and more desperation because we don't have leaders who know how to lead with compassion. So instead, Mm -hmm. there's going to be desperation and crime. But, you know, all we can do is tell jokes and make people laugh and make them forget their problems every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you said. Yeah, because it's the because, like as I said earlier in in the in the show, I said comics are like cousins, but to me, New York is like is like an old friend that I real that I never stopped loving. That's nice, you know. And so I, I it's like I just want. Now, granted, I'm from Philadelphia, so I hate all these sports teams. But the right, people, of course, <laughs> if you like the sports teams, I would think you're out of your mind. I would have hung up on you a long time ago. You know, it's like, what kind of a uh, Philadelphian person are you? How can you not, you know? No, I got news I, for you. I'm, I'm a big Eddie Brill fan. That's the truth. Okay, well, I told you that already. Nice. I, I, that's the truth. You know, but if you if you said hi, uh, yeah, um, I'm glad to be on the show. Yeah, I'm a big Yankees fan. I probably would have hung up on you. Yeah, I don't blame you. So I'm not I'm, I'm not that I big re- of a I fan, buddy. Everything I, said, I, everything I said good about you, I take it all back. <laughs> right. I understand. And I look, I root, I'm a New Yorker and I love New York and I root for the New York teams. Like I'm a New York Ranger fan. I'm a huge hockey fanatic and we hate the mm-hmm. Islanders. There are there are arch rivals uh, almost as much as the Devils. We hate the Islanders. My father loved the Islanders. <laughs> I love the Rangers. But because I'm in New York and the Islanders are now in the playoffs, you know, they might be gone by tomorrow. We're recording this uh, before they do game six. The um, they might be gone, but I'm rooting for them. My brother, who's such a Ranger fan like me, he's like, "Are you out of your mind?" I'm fuck the Islanders. I'm rooting for you know. I want Tampa Bay. I go. What do you like about Tampa Bay? They're not the Islanders, you know. Like, okay, I got you. <laughs> I got this. If you, it's like if you, you when you mentioned the Devils right now, I almost uh walked out of it and started. I, had, I almost had to gargle and spit out the sink. Uh, <laughs> I had this bad taste in my mouth. I was hired by the Flyers. The Flyers, um, I got a call from, they called the John Stewart show way back when. And they were looking for John mm-hmm. to come in and do, uh, the Flyers were playing the Devils in a playoff series. And the Devils had taken the first two or something like that. And um, they called, they wanted John to come and do some stand up for them, you know, as a surprise to them. And John, I guess, recommended me. Or someone at the at the show recommended me, and I got to do the party for the Flyers. And I had carte blanche with the, uh, even though you know they're I'm a Ranger fan, I didn't say it at the thing, but I was able to. <laughs> I, and the, then the Flyers did well after my little comedy performance, so I kind of felt responsible for their success. And you know, screw the Devils. And weirdly enough, my son, I come from a family where my father was an Islander fan, I'm a Ranger fan, and my son's a Devils fan. So, oh, it's brutal. <laughs> I hear you. Know, you. I, uh, 
Now, if you if you tell me he's a Cowboys fan, I'm, I'm going to have oh, to apologize. No. I'm going to have to beat your son up. Yeah, oh, and, no. uh, <laughs> I, that's, we all in unison hate the Cowboys. You know, we'd like to see them. Thank you, Brave. Oh wait a minute, oh, I just have to say one more. I just want to say one more thing because my second biggest audience is Texas. Listen, yeah. Um, once again, uh, it's just the team. Just the team. <laughs> Only the team. I've had some you of the guys best are incredible in, my life in Texas. So. <laughs> Yeah. It's like I have to make sure that I kiss up to uh, California, New York, Texas, and Pennsylvania because those are my top four states. So listen, yeah. all four of you states are, and uh, they, they, you're incredible. And and I just wanted to point that out. <clears throat> I had to. Sorry, okay. I had to do that. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I hear you knocking. And I'm I'm not kidding about Philadelphia. Yeah. I love Philly as a city. I think it's has a great energy. It's palpable. There's it's a great music scene. There's incredible restaurants. I love the history, you know. And so whenever I go to Philly, I have a good feeling. And like I said, I have a ton of friends there, and it's just such a great place. But you know, I'm a New Yorker, and I you know I'm 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 it's it's the motherland for me, and that's what, you know. I was happy to be here on 9-11, not happy about 9-11, but happy to be here. I was supposed to fly that morning to Los Angeles. Happy to be here because it's my city. And it's like you're the mm-hmm. captain of the ship and you don't want to, you don't, you go down with the ship. You know, you, I'm, I love New York City with all my heart. So I'm glad that I live here and uh, I'm glad that I've been here for most of my life, you know. Yes, indeed. Mr. Brill, it's been a thrill. I want to thank you, man, because... I've been wanting to get you on this show for a while. You just had to ask. Like I said, yeah. See, no one told me that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, good. Oh, I'm going to I'm I'm ask and see if he'll do it. And you, uh, you know, so I, I appreciate it. Uh, uh, I'm going to, this This is going to be coming out. Uh, this episode is going to come out tomorrow. Okay. Uh, so and you'll send have it anything to me and I'll you, share it. Yeah. Yeah, if, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now, if you have anything, if you have anything, and the reason I told you it's coming out tomorrow because I, I don't do a lot of long delays between the recording and I edit and then I and I uh, put it out because I like to be able to when I have somebody on if they have gigs or something like that and they want to promote a gig or something like that they can do it on the episode and then have it be active. So, well, uh, I have podcasts. Even though it's hard to, <laughs> you know, I have I have podcast the OG Talk OG for Organic Grill and I interviewed you know. Uh, Colin Quinn and, uh, you know, uh, Artie Lang and then, you know, uh, John Joseph of the Cro-Mag, St. Rock and Rollers, news anchor people, politicians, and it's all in a healthy food environment. And then I have The Break with Eddie Bro, which is 11 interviews with some of the greatest comics of all time about how they started. And my first regular gig, I have, you know, that's it's going to be the first weekend of October at the Alameda Comedy Club. I'm going to it's a brand new club. I helped the guy design the place. I'm his consultant. We were going to open April 1st. I was going to be on the very first show April 1st. Now I'm on the very first show. Uh, They open the first week of October. And I'm also teaching a comedy workshop there. You can't teach comedy, but I I, you could workshop it. And I've been doing that for the last 20 years, all over 25 years around the world. And uh, I'm doing one of those um, almost filled up. But if you want to just contact Patrick at Alameda comedy.com. And uh, if you're in that area and come say hello and uh, hopefully I'll see you inside a comedy club and you and I will have to have uh, grab a bite to eat the next time you're coming this way or I come your way. Absolutely. And thank you once again for doing this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. 
It's my pleasure. And you have I look my forward regular... to meeting you in person, my friend. Yeah, and you have my regular phone number, yeah. don't you? I don't know if you do. If you don't, uh, you'll we'll text it to each other. We'll get okay. it. We'll send it to each other. And then, uh... we'll, do that. we'll do that on Messenger. I don't think you want to get uh, tons of phone Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, no, I know better. I know better. I know. You know what's funny? I, my, 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 when, when I had a landline, I used to have my number was listed. And no one called it because they would think, yeah, why would he list that number? So it worked. Mm-hmm. And, and I got like three calls in my life from people going, Man, you know, we were in the third grade together. I was like, oh, my God, Scott Levine. You know, so it was <laughs> like I was so glad that I left my number listed because there was a couple of friends of mine from childhood that had looked for me in the in the book and got me. But, you know, nowadays I'm OK. You can you can find me on the Internet. You know, you can find me and uh, and contact me. If you liked or hated anything I said, so this is well. Well, this audience loves you. I know that much because I know this audience. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> after all, after all these. Oh my good. Thank you, my good, my good sir. I appreciate you for yes. coming on. Same here. Have a beautiful night, and we'll talk again soon. Hey, take care. Thank you. Yeah. Bye bye. everybody now did i tell you or did i tell you did you love that or what that was a lot of fun i'm glad i got an opportunity to have eddie on the show and eddie i know you're listening to this once again thank you for coming on and more importantly than anything else i want to thank all of you for listening and i want to thank all of you for constantly telling your friends about the show and having new audiences pile in on a regular basis much love to all of you and i will talk to you next time take care